The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And it is an absolute honor today to welcome Mr. Ken Cook. He is president and co-founder of the Environmental Working Group. He was named one of agriculture's 100 most influential leaders by Progressive Farmer. He has had many hours of toil in our nation's capital promoting policies that benefit our environment. He holds a master's degree from the University of Missouri in soil science, and he has worked tirelessly as an advocate for public health as it relates to the environment. Most recently, his report, Looking at Pesticides and Produce, was released, and it received a lot of negative press that it was not deserving. So I thought we'd have Mr. Cook on, and we could talk about the work that the Environmental Work Group does Welcome, Ken. Thank you, Melinda. It's great to be on the show. The Environmental Working Group is a nonprofit organization, and it has many areas of focus. I have seen you present on farm subsidies, for example. You have spoken about sunscreen, babies being born with toxins just circulating throughout their system. You have tips on cell phone radiation, gas drilling and fracking. But what I'd like to start our conversation off with today is this Consumer's Guide or Shopper's Guide to Pesticides and Produce. The brand new 2012 edition just came out. Consumers may know it as the Dirty Dozen and the Clean 15. How did you get started doing this report? Well, you know, it's a, it's an interesting story. This report in particular came out of our growing uh, understanding that consumers really just no matter what you tell them about some pesticides being riskier than others or more hazardous, people just don't like to eat pesticides in their food. Uh, you know, right. it just it just uh, it just turns out that if they have a choice, they'd like to be able to avoid pesticides. They don't believe the government uh, when the government says it's safe, and one reason why is we've got lots of examples of the government basically saying sometimes for decades that a pesticide that occurs in food is perfectly safe to eat, and then all of a sudden new research comes in, a new scientific review or government analysis comes through, and the next day it's banned. Mm -hmm. And I think people have picked up on this over the years, and they've come to understand that many of these pesticides are contested within the regulatory process, and eventually the government will come out and say, hey, you know, we know we've been assuring you for decades it's safe, but it turns out it's not, and we're taking it off the market. So uh, they don't trust the government. They don't definitely don't trust food companies, agribusiness interests, and unfortunately they've grown distrustful of, of farmers. They don't tr- trust pesticide companies to make claims that things are safe. And so even though in many cases we have done the kind of analysis that shows what kind of safety margins you can achieve if you reduce pesticide exposure, People want to just find a way to not eat it at all. And so what we basically asked ourselves was, okay, a lot of people maybe can't find or can't afford organic food all the time. 
Uh, they want to eat fruits and vegetables. What can they do if they want to avoid pesticides? And we realize that the Department of Agriculture publishes every year extensive laboratory test results that they have done preparing food as if for consumption. So they, you know, they'll wash and peel fruit that's handled that way normally by consumers. They'll peel the bananas. They'll, you know, they'll uh, wash and core the the apples and so forth. And they published the pesticide test results. So we thought, well, let's look at those and see what we can come up with. And lo and behold, there are plenty of conventionally produced fruits and vegetables, plenty of them. Uh, we call them the clean 15, but there are many more than 15 that simply have very low amounts of pesticide contamination in them, not many different types of pesticides, and when there are pesticides, very low levels. Not quite organic, but it's the nature of how the pesticides are applied to those crops, when they're harvested, uh, the types of pesticides used, leaves them without that residue. So we started publishing this list, and it took off. We published in tandem the dozen or so crops that have the most pesticide residues, and unfortunately things like apples are often near the very top of the list, and then we publish the Clean 15, and consumers love it. I run into people all the time who say the list is in their wallet. We have a, an iPhone and an Android a, a app. We have distributed these online, and people love it because they feel like it empowers them, gives them some choice, uh, and again, you know, uh, sometimes you can't find or afford organic. A very good friend of mine, uh, Phil Landrigan, likes to say that organic is like private school for food. It's great if you can find it, great if you can afford it, but not everyone can. So we started publishing this list simply to give people who said to us, look, I don't trust anybody when it comes to pesticides, even EWG, just show me which ones uh, which fruits and vegetables are lowest in pesticides, and I can always buy organic. And that's kind of how it unfolded. Well, apples are indeed number one on the dirty dozen, Ken. And I have to laugh because as a dietitian, I see food as preventive medicine. And the apple, of course, is just this icon of health, right? An apple a day keeps the doctor right. away. Right. And I think that what the industry says in response to this list is, hey, you know what? If you're concerned, just wash it. And yet, as you pointed out, the tests for residues are done when the food is washed, oftentimes peeled, sometimes cooked. So peeling and washing is not necessarily a guarantee that we won't get those pesticides in our diet because many of them are systemic. The industry doesn't like us to know that, but I feel as a consumer educator, it's very important for consumers to know that washing, while important, is not enough. That's right. We always tell people, of course, wash your produce you know, you don't wash bananas, but you wash everything else, right? And and it makes all the sense in the world to do that, but it does still leave you with uh, some pesticide residues. And the data we use from the Department of Agriculture, from their own laboratories, is, again, uh, as prepared for consumption. So they've gone ahead and they've washed. In some cases, they've peeled, and, and you still get pesticide residues. Exactly. Now, as might be expected, there are organizations that are not happy with your exposure. And so uh, there's one organization in particular that took this list to task. And I'm not sure exactly how to talk about this organization because they're quite insidious in how they try to influence dietitians. Dietitians are often at the front line. Consumers come to us for simple questions about what should I eat. And so as you might imagine, we are the targets 
of the food industry. So the food industry tries to get to us first and tell us, you know, don't don't worry about telling people about the dirty dozen. Listen to us. Everything's okay. And in fact, I will name the organization. It is the Alliance for Food and Farming. They've worked closely with the Produce for Better Health Foundation, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and gets their message out to consumers through extension offices. As I said, this is quite insidious. But I thought it was interesting in the first line of their rebuttal to your report. They said, the Environmental Working Group is an activist organization. What kind of frame is that? (laughs) Well, I think what they're trying to invoke with that kind of language, to be honest, I'm very proud that we take an active role in promoting understanding about environmental issues, including environmental health and food, as you have so well stated, Melinda, is topic A when it comes to environmental health. It de- determines so much of what what our prospects are long-term for a healthy and productive life. Uh, nutrition's the core. I, I think they invoke that frame for the simple reason that they hope that we're responding emotionally, or at least viewed as responding emotionally, being anti-technology. So it's very irksome when we say things like I'm about to say, which is, there's much greater risk from not eating fruits and vegetables than there is from the pesticides in the fruits and vegetables. We want people to eat a diverse diet. We encourage people. I have a four-year-old boy. We routinely find ourselves feeding him conventional produce. I don't worry about that. I worry about junk food. The real issue here is not whether we're activists or not or advocates or not. The real issue is uh, the fruit and vegetable industry has done a deplorable job of their core mission, if you listen to them brag about it, which is to encourage people to eat more fruits and vegetables. They've had lots of government money to try and encourage that, but for a variety of reasons, they just haven't been very successful. Um, mm-hmm. It's not just that there's competition from salty, sugary foods out there. That's certainly a factor that draws people uh, away from healthy eating. But I think the fruit and vegetable industry have done a, a very poor job because in many cases they've stood up and defended pesticides instead of pressed harder to reduce the use of pesticides, push back at the pesticide companies and say we need solutions that result in no pesticide residues as we're trying to deal with bugs and weeds and, and other pest problems. So I think what they're really trying to do in invoking that is to suggest to people that we're not grounded in science, we're not concerned about people's health, we're just anti-pesticides, anti-agriculture, uh, none of none of that is the case. Uh, I will say that, you know, once they started coming after us, and by the way, they got almost $200,000 in taxpayer money a, a couple of years ago to do that from the state of California, it was federal money channeled through the state, they got it one time and there was such an uproar from consumers who basically agree with us that they want to know what's in their food. And this is not this Alliance for Food and Farming, which initially started to promote chemicals and promote their safety. They said that right in their the mission statement of their organization uh, just a few years ago, which they've since, since scrubbed clean to be all about health and nutrition and family farmers. But they really are uh, positioning themselves in a way that I think is going to hurt conventional produce production even more. They're basically saying to people, Everything is completely safe, and if you're concerned about pesticides, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. Our position is a little different. We have decided that one of the founding principles of our country needs to be upheld here, which is not give me liberty or give me death or from many one. Uh, It is the customer is always right. 
And the customers in this case would really like to have some idea of what's in their food and if they can avoid pesticides, they'd like to have a simple tool to do it. We provided this simple tool. Millions of copies of it have been distributed. Since the Alliance has decided to start attacking us, um, and they have uh, many uh, pesticide interests on their uh, board, they have many, and in their membership, they have a tremendous uh, agribusiness component there that wants to push out food and without uh, consumers raising any questions. But since they've come out after us, all that has happened is it's gotten greater visibility. We get uh, probably five times the media coverage that we received uh, in previous years when they weren't attacking us, a huge increase in our web traffic because suddenly people think, well, if this is so controversial and these big produce companies, these big agribusiness concerns and pesticide interests are coming after this organization, what is it that they're saying that is so troublesome? And when they come to our website, they, I think, tend to agree, hey, this is a very practical tool. We're not saying don't eat produce that's conventionally grown. We're just saying if if you're concerned about it, and surveys show Americans are overwhelmingly concerned about pesticides and produce, here's an easy way to shop your way out of the problem and reduce some of your exposure. And again, I think if it weren't the case that the government from time to time comes out and declares a pesticide that had been said to be safe as suddenly unsafe, specifically for kids, and specifically with respect to dietary intake in fruits, vegetables, processed foods. The fact that the government does that periodically, every few years, some of these widely used pesticides, I think that has really convinced a lot of consumers that, hey, there's more to this than meets the eye. So every time we hear an assurance from these agribusiness interests, pesticide interests, that everything is safe, we should really be be careful. And they are, and our guide gives them a a very pragmatic, practical tool to uh, pursue their concerns. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Ken Cook. He is president and co-founder of the Environmental Working Group. Prior to founding the Environmental Working Group, Ken served as the vice president for policy at the Center for Resource Economics. He also directed press and governmental relations at the World Wildlife Fund and Conservation Foundation. He was named one of agriculture's 100 most influential leaders by Progressive Farmer. And I would like to add that we are having a discussion not with someone who is simply the president of an organization that looks at public health and farming, but also someone who has a master's degree in soil science and a bachelor's degree in agriculture. So your link, Ken, to food, health, and agriculture is extremely well-founded, and I love that you have that policy emphasis as well. You mentioned several things that I want to pick up on. One is the messaging that comes out of the Alliance for Food and Farming, and it's a consumer red flag. We have to know who owns the messages about our food. And, yes, they state that they include conventional as well as organic production, but, you know, they do not list their members. They're not transparent in that. I have tried to find one organic farmer that is a member of this alliance, and if I was an organic farmer, I think I'd be a little reluctant to join up because they say negative things about organic farming. So I really want to encourage consumers to always question the messenger. Is the purpose at the end of the day to increase profits or is it to protect public health? We need transparency. We need more precautionary principle adherence. And this whole idea of dosage, you know, one of the messages that we hear from the pesticide and conventional or chemical agriculture is 
that, well, you know, it's just a little bit. And years ago, that was one of the models for toxicology, that the dose made the poison, and it followed that if you had a high dose, you had a greater level of harm. But actually, what we've learned is that very low doses can also convey biological harm. So this idea that, well, you know, you might get some, but it's just a little bit, really doesn't hold any weight for me. Do you want to comment on that as well? Well, sure. I think you're, you've put your finger right on it. As we've understood more about how toxic substances work and looked for more kinds of biological effects, we find them uh, oftentimes at very low doses. And again, to return to pesticides, in recent years, uh, the Environmental Protection Agency has taken pesticides either off the market or prohibited their use on certain fruits and vegetables precisely because they have found that uh, their analyses are showing risk at levels that were previously thought safe. And so from a variety of standpoints, science has marched on and understood that while it's always fair to say that the dose makes the poison, we now understand that some people, the dose for some people, the dose for children is very different than maybe the average dose that might be causing uh, a risk. And so as toxicology has advanced, as we've started to look at effects on our hormonal systems, on the endocrine system and so forth, we have found that the fairly exquisitely low levels of some toxic chemicals can pose a risk. And that is very worrisome to an industry that is used to pushing back against any effort to regulate uh, pesticides or other toxic chemicals that might get in our food. And one thing I would really, you're right on when you say people should understand the source of the information. I think in this particular case, many of the experts that are being brought out by this Alliance for Food and Farming, many of them have figured prominently in efforts to block pesticide regulation over the years. Mm. So there's a special irony here, right? Here you have experts and uh, basically a, a front group for agribusiness and pesticide interests, the Alliance for Food and Farming, asserting that there are no risks at all from pesticides in food. And they brag that we have a very strong regulatory system in the United States that ensures that there is no risk from pesticides in food. And yet, time and again, when we found ourselves in regulatory debates over specific pesticides and whether they're safe or not, these very same experts are some of the ones who step up and say, no, don't regulate, don't tighten it. So, again, they like to brag about the safety of our food that regulation has created after they've lost the fights mm-hmm. <laughs> that uh, resulted in more regulation. So I think it's one thing to voluntarily step out, which we wish they would do, and start pushing hard to reduce pesticide exposure themselves in the interest of what their actual consumers want. If they did that instead of at every turn fighting pesticide regulation and then bragging about what happens when pesticides are regulated as if they volunteered to do it as an industry, which they didn't. Every time there's a big fight over pesticide regulation in this country, those very same interests are there pushing back against the government, lobbying Congress, lobbying the White House, saying no more regulation. And uh, sometimes they win. Mm -hmm. But when they don't, EPA takes action. They protect 
oftentimes following the 1996 pesticide law, they will take action specifically to protect infants and children from pesticide exposure in food. And when they do that and take a pesticide off the market, consumers go, aha, maybe I can't trust that the ones that are still on are safe because someday they may be banned too. And secondly, these companies that fight so hard and these big farm interests, agribusiness interests that fight so hard against regulation, uh, they find themselves discredited because it looks as if all they're ever trying to do is keep as many pesticides available to them to spray and handle their pest problems as possible. The other subtext here that's really important is the dramatic growth in organic agriculture. Mm -hmm. uh, we are seeing, even during the, the downturn in the economy, we are seeing a very significant increase in the sales of organic fruits and vegetables, organic milk, all kinds of other organic products. It's now a $32 billion industry. We've seen organics share of produce go uh, from just about 3 or 4% 10 years ago to uh, about 12% today of the market value of produce. That's extraordinary. And in some areas, such as organic apples, organic lettuces, uh, spring mix, and so forth, the percentage share for organic is much greater. That, I think, is a threat to conventional interests. Mm -hmm. It makes it look as if this is going to become mainstream. And, in fact, that's exactly what organic is starting to do. You know, it's interesting that farmers have unfortunately been duped into thinking that they have to feed the world, that it's their responsibility to feed the world, and they're quite proud of that. And, oh, by the way, they can't feed the world unless they're using these modern tools of agriculture, such as pesticides. And, you know, in my experience, Ken, in speaking with organic farmers, we find that especially during these climate challenges, during droughts and deluges, you know, these, these crazy weather patterns, that it's actually the organic farmer that fares the best. I think that's exactly right, Melinda. This, the soil health is so very different in an organic system, and they have much more resilience to things like drought, much more resilience over time to, to pesticides, much healthier soils. I don't think there's any question about that. And that, I think, is really my definition of modern agriculture, is those farmers on the cutting edge who are, are moving in the organic direction or are already there because instead of using spray as an input, they're using brain power as an input. Exactly. And before we let conventional farmers off so lightly and suggest that they're practicing modern agriculture, let's not forget that most of the top 10 pesticides that are being used in this country have been in use for, in some cases, 30 or 40 years. Imagine a 30 or 40-year-old automobile or a drug for that matter that was still in use, you would probably wonder just how modern it is, how up-to-date it is, with no seatbelts, no airbags, and so forth. Exactly. Well, I think modern agriculture, conventional agriculture, that myth needs to be pierced a little bit. I agree. Uh, because not only do we have a lot of old chemicals still being used that are toxic, but we also have a whole set of new technologies coming along that are bringing some of these old chemicals back. 2,4-D is a perfect example. Mm -hmm. Farmers got hooked on Roundup-ready crops. They paid a lot of money for the seed. They sprayed Roundup on their fields. We were able to do it after the crop came up because the technology conveyed a resistance in the crops to the Roundup weed killer. And lo and behold, the crops weren't the only ones that had resistance to Roundup. We started seeing the emergence of superweeds, and now there are dozens and dozens of them, species in the United States, 
that you can spray with Roundup, and uh, they flourish. Mm -hmm. Uh, So now we're having to move on to a new technology that bioengineers, genetically engineers, crops so that they can resist the old 2,4-D. The company uh, that makes it, Dow's, claims that this 2,4-D is very different from the the one in the Vietnam era that made so many, associated with so many uh, illnesses with our veterans, but they are nonetheless bringing that basic chemistry back now because the so-called modern approach of Roundup-ready crops resulted in weed resistance. So um, on that treadmill, that's not a a path to the future. That's That's a path to continuing to make the same mistakes. Ken, we just have a couple of minutes left, and I want to direct people to your website. It is www.ewg.org. That stands for Environmental Working Group. There are many piggyback topics to what we've been talking about. For example, the film segment that you have, Pollution in People, that babies are being born pre-polluted, this idea of using more pesticides. If whatever we put into the environment ends up getting into ourselves, You mentioned Phil Landrigan. He has written a report not too long ago talking about the compounds that are leading to rises in autism. Guess what? Pesticides are on that list, too. So from your website, where would you like people to go? We we know for sure we want them to go to the Shopper's Guide to Pesticides in Produce, but with just two minutes left, where else do you want them to go? Well, you know, at, at Environmental Working Group, we sort of put people at the center of our equation about what the proper measurement of environmental health is. And so what you'll find at, at ewg.org are a lot of examples where we, we basically pursue the notion that the environment is not something external to us. It's something we actually metabolize, not just food, the, the air we breathe, the water we drink, the consumer products we buy. So if you're interested in advancing your own efforts to reduce exposure to toxic chemicals, I would go to our website called Skin Deep. Mm-hmm. Uh, after you visit the Shopper's Guide for Pesticides and Produce, go to the Skin Deep website. You'll find out uh, for over 70,000 personal care products, shampoos, makeup, skin lotions, and so forth, you'll find what we've learned about some of the chemicals that are in those products that we smear on our skin, our largest organ. And some of the chemicals are of concern to us. So we started publishing uh, scores. You can go through your medicine cabinet, your personal care product supplies, and look them up on our website. That'll tell you the kinds of things you're applying to your skin. Take a look at our tap water database. We've collected information from all over the country on uh, various contaminants in drinking water. Those would be three good places to start, the Shopper's Guide, Skin Deep, and our tap water database. And then, since it's summertime, go to our sunscreen guide, because we've been doing battle with the FDA for some years now, trying to get them to finally publish safety guidelines for sunscreens. They've put it off again and again at the behest of the sunscreen industry, and we've obviously exploded the myth through our work in the recent years that you, if you see something on a sunscreen package that says waterproof, that is not a valid claim. If you Thank see you. something that sw- says sweatproof, Thank it's you. also not a valid claim. And uh, the Food and, Food and Drug Administration has finally agreed with us, but they are not finalizing the regulation. So these are all ways you can look uh, to EWG to, to help you protect your health and your family's health 
from toxic chemicals. Thank you so much, Ken, for all of the work that your Environmental Working Group does. It is one of my one-stop shops for just this kind of information. We have been speaking with Ken Cook. He is the president and co-founder of the Environmental Working Group. I want to thank Ken so much for being my guest. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you again for your work and for being my guest. Melinda, my pleasure. Thank you so much.